You have heard the passage that we are dealing with today, and it has to do with justice. There's a cry for legal justice in the courts of this world. There's a cry for social justice on earth because there is so much suffering going on. While the message of Christmas, the peace that God gives, affects our inner being, there is still so much trouble and so much suffering on a daily basis worldwide. I guess we all treasure justice very much, and we are greatly disturbed if justice is perverted. I still remember when I was a teenager, and I was accused by a teacher in school of misbehavior and of not having submitted the imposed extra work. I didn't know anything about it, but because I did not submit that, I had to do even more extra work. Later, she found out that she had confused me with another student who had the very same last name. Now, I was proven innocent, but still, it hurt to suffer innocently. November 1330 this year, this is a press release, after fighting to prove his innocence for nearly 30 years, Donis Musgrove died last week from lung cancer in the infirmary on death row at Donaldson Correctional Facility in Alabama. Mr. Musgrove, 67, steadfastly maintained his innocence of the 1986 killing of a man in Jefferson County. His attorney argues that he was wrongly convicted because the prosecution falsified evidence against him. Mr. Musgrove was tried by the same judge who handled the case of Anthony Ray Hinton, who was exonerated and released this year after 30 years on death row for crimes he did not commit. Justice. But justice is not only limited to criminal cases. Our generation, and especially young people, are concerned with issues of social justice, issues of unfair treatment of minorities, unequal representation, discrimination of races, age groups, gender, etc., etc. Justice. Jesus' appearance before the chief priests, elders, and the scribes, as well as his appearance before Pilate, we heard about that last night, Last, last week by Bill Not, cry out with a loud voice, injustice, blatant injustice. All those involved knew that neither the death penalty nor any other form of punishment was justified in Jesus' case. The rulings were a farce, but nobody cared. Political moves, jealousy, personal interests, and dependence on the decision of authorities prevented people from dealing fairly with the prisoner, Jesus Christ. Already the Old Testament reminds us that God is righteous and just. He loves righteousness and justice. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. To him it is unacceptable to deprive the needy from justice and to rob the poor of their right, abusing widows and orphans. 
because of the danger to follow our own evil hearts, the Lord commanded his people not to pervert justice, not to show partiality, and not to accept bribe. But this command was not heeded. What happened to Jesus was pure injustice. Even Jewish and Roman legal procedures had to be violated in order to reach the desired outcome, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. People with a keen sense of justice may even get angry when they think about what was done to Jesus, how justice was corrupted, how he was mocked, beaten, abused at the hearings before the Hans Sanhedrin and the trial before Pilate. How can we live and how can we believe when justice is sometimes completely perverted in this world? Our passage today, and if you want to, you can open your Bibles. We will read um, passages later. Is Mark 15, 21 through 41. We heard that in the scripture reading. It focuses on the crucifixion of Jesus, as you know it. Embedded in this narrative is, first of all, the inscription, the king of the Jews. And apart from that inscription, there are six speeches, six, seven statements in total. Pilate speaks indirectly through this inscription. He is followed by the blasphemy of the people and the mockery of the chief priests and scribes. Three, three statements right there. In the center of these seven statements, we find Jesus. And he utters a single sentence in the Gospel of Mark. Apart from that, Jesus remains silent. Yes, <clears throat> there are seven last words of Jesus if we look at all the four Gospels. They deal with Jesus' willingness to forgive his tormentors, his assurance of salvation to the repentant robber on the cross, his caring words addressed to his mother, including also the charge to John, the cry of God forsakenness, the mention of his thirst, his decision to commit himself in God's hand, and at the end of his agony, the final word, it is finished. Seven words of Jesus. And it's certainly good to look at these statements together. But sometimes it is also appropriate to listen to just one evangelist in order to see and hear what his special emphasis is. And so we restrict ourselves to Mark. So in Mark, as I said, we have three statements before Jesus speaks. A single statement followed by three other statements. These bystanders misunderstand Jesus by talking about Elijah. The person who gave Jesus the vinegar to drink speaks also about Elijah. And finally, the centurion makes a profound statement. Seven statements in total. Jesus' crucifixion certainly affects himself, but it also affects all of humanity. Humans had and have to come to grips with this event, the crucifixion. They have to make a decision 
about how they want to relate to this man, Jesus of Nazareth, who claimed to be Israel's king. You may have noticed another feature in our passage. While Mark typically does not give us a lot of chronological information, here in this chapter he does. Jesus was crucified, we read, in the third hour, which is nine in the morning. Uh, the darkness began very precise. The darkness began at the sixth hour, which is at noon. The end came with the ninth hour. The first segment from nine to 12 is filled with the speeches and the mockery of these people and their leaders. The second time element from noon to three o'clock consists mainly of silence, mainly silence. At the end of this time, Jesus speaks and people respond in one way or the other. And then the end is there. The Messiah breathes his last. Jesus, the king, is dead, killed by those that he had created and for whom he cared all his life long. Now let's take a closer look. Uh, I will read again verses 21 through 27. And they compelled the passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he didn't take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. This segment describes what humans did to Jesus. You may remember Mel Gibson's film, movie, The Passion of Christ. It was a major commercial hit, the highest crossing R-rated film in the United States history, the highest crossing religious film, and the highest crossing non-English language film of all time, containing excessive scenes of violence. But did this movie make a lasting impact on society? Mark takes another approach. He is very short. No elaborate description of the horrors of the crucifixion. Short sentences that hammer into our minds the brutal fact. They crucified him. Again, they crucified him. And a third time, they crucified him with two robbers. The first century audience knew what crucifixion was. It was not necessary to repeat it. And it may not be even helpful today to go on all the details. James Edwards notes, every totalitarian regime needs a terror apparatus and crucifixion was Rome's terror apparatus, infamous alike for its affliction of pain and 
ignominy on the victim. Depending on the severity of flogging beforehand, some victims survive the crosses several days. So it's different if you shoot someone or give it whatever, use death penalty, or someone is suffering for days. Crucifixion was a ghastly form of death, excruciatingly painful, prolonged, and socially degrading. No wonder that even decades later, the death of Jesus was a scandal, a stumbling block, and foolishness to both Jews and Gentiles. And it is true. It is true the horrors of crucifixion do not necessarily make people Christians. They did not even lead the majority of the bystanders and the Jewish leadership to have pity on the crucified. They had no pity, obviously. In the first five five verses of this passage, Jesus is not mentioned a single time by name or by, by title. Only the generic pronoun he is used. It is as if he were a mere number, such as people in Nazi concentration camps were. Such a reduction of humans to numbers demonstrates a form of dehumanization that makes it easy to mistreat and abuse a person. It is easier to kill a soft target than our neighbor or even our friends Alice and Marcel. Maybe for this reason, nobody was willing to carry Jesus' cross when he physically extremely weakened, collapsed under its weight. Jesus had been made a nobody. The soldiers had to force Simon of Cyrene to carry Jesus' cross. Now, his sons had become Christians, at least at the time when Mark wrote down his gospel, and they were known to, to the audience of the gospel of Mark. And carrying the cross of Jesus changed his life too. Now, you may remember earlier in the gospel, John and James had requested to have places right and left of Jesus. Now, two robbers took these places in fulfillment of prophecy. And Jesus thereby was counted among criminals. The downward spiral proceeded, but fortunately, James and John's stupid wish had not been fulfilled. Jesus had warned them that high positions in the kingdom include drinking a cup and being baptized with a baptism which is difficult to take. Pilate's inscription, the king of the Jews, may have brought about a change in the spiral of dehumanization, even if meant ironically. In this inscription, Jesus is again regarded as a person, even as an important person. Pilate finally showed some stamina in dealing with Jewish leadership, but it was already too late. Jesus would die on the cross. Nevertheless, mysteriously, Pilate had revealed Jesus' true identity. Jesus is indeed the king, and his crucifixion is, in some sense, his coronation. 
The passion story in Mark is permeated by references and hints to Jesus' kingship, even if it is ironically. Humans did not only mistreat Jesus and crucify him without pity, but they also reviled and insulted him. We look at verses 29 through 32 now. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. The passerby and the onlookers blasphemed him. This is the real translation of the Greek word, to blaspheme. And Mark uses that by purpose, the word to blaspheme. Why? The issue is not just one human being cursing another human being. In the Gospel of Mark, Blasphemy is an action directed against God. Though fellow humans dehumanize Jesus, Mark gives him standing and status. He elevates him to what Jesus really is. You blaspheme him because he is God. While Jesus is human, he is also God. Ironically, Jesus was accused of blasphemy earlier. While in reality, those who accused him were the blasphemers. They have become instruments in the hand of Satan. Their call to save himself is also very ironic, as you will in, and see that, that Mark is full of irony. Because by dying on the cross, Jesus will actually provide salvation for all those who want to be saved. He had claimed beforehand that he would give his life as a ransom to many. But by leaving the cross, as they wanted it to happen, all of humanity would have been lost. Irony. Following the people, now Jewish leadership pitched in and brought up again the kingship theme. They called Jesus mockingly and yet correctly the Messiah, and the king of Israel. Then they moved to the topic of salvation, as the multitudes has done. The leaders claimed that Jesus had saved others, but could not save himself. Could Jesus have saved himself? Certainly. Could Jesus have saved others by saving himself? No. So could he have left the cross? Yes and no. He could have left the cross because he had the power to do so. On the other hand, he could not leave it because our salvation mattered so much to him. He could not leave the cross because he loves us so much. Jesus' death on the cross and the details of his crucifixion were all fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. 
But the call to step down from the cross was a satanic temptation, similar to the temptation that Jesus endured in the desert after his baptism. Satan tried hard to make Jesus fail and to destroy the entire plan of salvation. At the end of their speech, the Jewish leaders basically say, give us a sign. We will believe you if you step down from the cross. You cannot make us believe in you if you die on the cross. That Messiah is not a Messiah at all. But a miracle, again, even a miracle, stepping down from the cross would not be a guarantee for people to believe in Jesus. The leaders assume that salvation of self is the greatest good. Jesus, however, has not taken upon himself the mission of self-help and self-fulfillment. He will be a ransom for others. Verses 33 through 39. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry, and priest had lost. Jesus silently endured the mockery. No curse came from his lips. No threat of revenge or retaliation. There was no self-defense. Jesus preserved his dignity under the most taxing circumstances. But the darkness came silence. The darkness may have covered the whole earth because the darkness as well as the death of Jesus has universal implications. The extended duration of the darkness indicates that this was a supernatural darkness, not just an eclipse of the sun. At times, darkness in Scripture is associated with divine judgment. But darkness can also be an indication of the presence of God, because God dwells in darkness. He shrouds himself in order that his consuming divine presence does not destroy humanity. While the darkness here in verse 33 may may have been a sign of the impending judgment, showing the displeasure of God on Jesus' enemies, and stressing also the importance of Jesus. It also veiled the presence of God Almighty from humanity. In other words, obviously, God, angels, were there at the cross. But Jesus was not able to notice it. From his perspective, there was absolute silence. The disturbing voices, human voices, Mocking him were muted. 
But Jesus had to deal with the silence of God. God's silence can be very discomforting. Our prayers reach, we feel, only the ceiling. There is no response, as if we were all by ourselves and heaven empty, if we experience such a time of God's silence. And many Christians have experienced that. C.S. Lewis has written about his situation. Throughout history, believers have struggled with periods of divine silence. In this situation, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Although the Father was near, Jesus experienced the absolute God-forsakenness of those who will die forever. More than that, he who had the most intimate relationship with the Father because he was a member of the Godhead experienced a separation from God that no created being ever can experience. No glimpse of hope. Nothing to hold on to apart from his faith. However, Jesus' sense of being abandoned was not despair. The despairing person retreats into silence. Jesus speaks. Also, his speech is anguished, maybe even confrontational. It is still a kind of prayer and still a cry for help and support. He still believes in God. Jesus still hangs in, still believes without being able to seal or feel a positive outcome of his torture and death. The people that mocked Jesus with the non-appearance of Elijah, who was supposed to save him, may have misunderstood him. Jesus called on God. We have the Aramaic here, Eloi, my God. And instead of God, they seem to have understood Elijah, which in Aramaic is Eli. So Eloi and Eli. In any case, they could not see that through suffering, Jesus would fulfill the plan of salvation. Did not the Old Testament even state, a hanged man is cursed, cursed by God? So Jesus died, mocked and despised by the majority of the bystanders. Mark does not paint an idealized picture, idealized picture of Jesus as it happened later in Christian history. There you had these wonderful reports of Christian martyrs who endured faithfully uh, all the pain that happened to them. Jesus was a human being, and as such, Mark portrays him. He suffered tremendously, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. His death was not a welcome friend, but an enemy. He had to deal with such an extent of abuse, ridicule, and God-forsakenness that it may have brought him very close to the breaking point. Keep also in mind that he had hardly any sleep, any food, nothing. But Jesus succeeded. He died as the righteous one who now is able to save us. Verses 38 through 41. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. 
And when the centurion who, centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Jesus, in spite of all that, gained the victory. And this victory is indicated by two extraordinary events. First, the supernatural tearing of the huge timber curtain. And second, the confession of the centurion. These two events signify that the death of the suffering Son of God is not a tra tragic end, but an event of divine fulfillment and revelation. The tearing of the curtain indicated that through the death of Jesus, the separation between God and humans had been overcome. The sacrificial system that pointed to the real sacrifice, Jesus Christ, was fulfilled and no longer necessary. Direct access to God had become possible. But the temple was also obsolete and would be destroyed by the very same Romans that had crucified Jesus. In Mark's gospel, two times the word to tear is being used. We find it the first time in connection with Jesus' baptism, and that may not be just an accident. When Jesus was back baptized, the heaven was torn apart, and the Holy Spirit descended on him. When Jesus died on the cross, the veil of the temple was torn, and access to God was provided. Edwards states, at the baptism and death of Jesus, the heavenly and earthly dwellings of God are opened to humanity. Since then, as Paul says, believers are already seated with Christ in heavenly places. Now, the centurion made a surprising and extraordinary statement He was not one of those who passed by the crucifixion scene. He had to give the order for the crucifixion to be carried out, and he had to stay there, making sure that nothing happens against the will of the authorities. So he had time to observe. At the death of Jesus, he suddenly calls out, this man was the Son of God. This is very remarkable. Jewish leadership insisted that Jesus would need to leave the cross alive for them to believe. The centurion, however, believed because he had observed Jesus dying on the cross. The suffering and death of Jesus opened his eyes. In his death, we also recognized Jesus as our Savior more even than in his life. His death is the supreme revelation of God. Although the title Son of God is Jesus' most important title in the Gospel of Mark, the centurion is the first human being in the Gospel of Mark to use that title for Jesus. The Gospel of Mark begins in verse 1 with Jesus Christ the Son of God, chapter 1, verse 1, and it draws to an end with Jesus, the Son of God. The title expresses this close relationship with the Heavenly Father and his divinity. 
The crucifixion story, let's recapulate, begins with Jesus being demoted to a generic human being. But inadvertently, he is elevated to kings of the Jews by Pilate. And a little later, to Christ, the Messiah, the king of Israel, by Jewish leadership. Finally, he is deliberately called the Son of God. A little earlier, in the gospel, Peter had confessed Jesus as the Messiah. Now the centurion recognized Jesus even as the Son of God. But both had still to learn more about who Jesus is and how he is, as we too have, even after years of being Christians and Adventists. The exclamation, this man was the Son of God, is a wonderful and life-changing insight. But it still falls short of the full truth. Jesus was not only the Son of God, but Jesus is the Son of God from eternity to eternity. And the centurion had to grasp this additional greater truth a little later when Jesus rose from the dead. Paradoxically, the death of Jesus is good news. Even through terrible injustice and painful and anguished death, God pursues and reaches his goals. Although the disciples are strangely missing in the crucifixion scene, we don't find them at all. A Gentile recognizes Jesus as son of God. Simon of Cyrene becomes a disciple, and the women that have supported Jesus remain close to him. And Jesus, he did not allow himself to be broken or shaped by injustice. He did not react violently to violence. He did not become bitter. He remained who he was, the most unselfish, the most loving and caring person on earth. He changed human history permanently through his life and death. By ending his life on the cross, he conquered injustice and death. Dying, he brought us life. Back to our question. How can we live and believe when justice is completely perverted in the world? There may be two dangers when we encounter injustice and evil. First, the danger that evil may break us and lead us into despair and hopelessness. Secondly, the danger that evil may transform us so that we ourselves become part of the evil system. How can we avoid these dangers? I think the text indirectly talks about that. We recognize that we live in a world which is terribly infected by evil and sin. We cannot expect to dwell on an island of bliss. Sooner or later, we too will be confronted by injustice and suffering. So we better count on it and are prepared. Second, we decide not to get involved in corrupting justice and do decide not to become part of the evil system. This means also that we need a biblical value system in which the goal of life is not just self-fulfillment, but selflessness. 
Jesus had said earlier in chapter 8, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. This means also we endure and persevere when things go wrong in marriage, family, society, and even the church. We do not run away or bury our heads in the sand. In order to live with evil and yet believe in the goodness of God, we need also the divine presence in our life. Like Jesus, we commit ourselves completely and daily to God, seeking him, his word, and his will, and trusting him. And we work on the transformation of evil structures into structures that are pleasing to God. In other words, we try to bring about in our world some change through our mission by proclaiming the crucified Lord who has given us life and through other forms of engagement. Now, in 1972, Heinrich Böll, this is a German uh, writer, won the Nobel Prize for Literature. In his writings, he tried to come to grips with the memory of World War II, the Nazis and the Holocaust, and the guilt that came with it. In his work, What Do You Think About Christianity?, he writes the following lines. I have many questions, but especially one. How is it possible? Now, keep in mind this several years ago. How is it possible that 800 million Christians can bring so little change to this world, a world of terror, oppression, and fear? A Christian world would need to be a world without fear. Our world is not Christian as long as, as fear does not decrease but does grow. Not the fear of death, but the fear of life and the fear of fellow humans, the fear of powers and circumstances, the fear of hunger and torture, the fear of war. Christians have not overcome the world. They have accommodated. However, he continues to say, the other perspective is even spookier. The nightmare of a pagan world, a world in which godlessness would be practiced consistently, allowing humans to fall in the hands of humans. Nowhere in the gospel have I found a justification of oppression, murder, violence. Among Christians, mercy is at least possible. And every now and then, there are Christians. And if one of them appears, the world is amazed. 800 million people in this world, Christians, have the chance to astound the world. Maybe some take a chance. Christ's crucifixion confronts us with the challenge of living in the face of injustice and suffering. It is the paradox of believing in a crucified Savior who did not save himself and in his selfishness, conquer, selflessness, conquered the evil system. Saved through the life and the death of Christ on the cross, we follow his footsteps and we praise him as our Lord. Amen.